I hope you're all doing good. It's good to see you. If you're new here, welcome to Mission Road Bible Church. My name is Moses, a pastoral resident here. And I've been tasked to teach the lesson today. And we're continuing our study um, of our glorious God, the attributes of God. And we're continuing looking at God's goodness. And my task today is to teach on God's jealousy. So we're going to be looking at that today, God's jealousy. I hope you were able to get a handout from the back. If you did not, please make your way there and pick yourself, get yourself a, a handout. Jealousy is often viewed as a vice, not a virtue. And the definition in our dictionaries are consistent with this view. Dictionary.com defines Human jealousy as a feeling of resentment against the per someone because of that person's rivalry, success, or advantage. It is characterized by or proceeds from suspicious fears or envious resentment. The Oxford Dictionary defines human jealousy as a feeling or showing an envious resentment to someone or their achievements because or their, their achievements, possessions or perceived advantages. Thus, usually, when we think of jealousy, we think of negative aspects of jealousy. We think of the toxic human emotion that stems from pride or insecurities that clouds people's judgment, create tension in relationships. Most of the times it is egocentric. Our understanding of jealousy is muddied by our experience, our creaturely jealousy, marred by sin, so much so that reading that God is jealous becomes a hard pill to swallow for many. Oprah Winfrey, for example, in an interview was asked why she left the church and she stated that she left when she heard that God was a jealous God. She recounted the moment which took place in her late 20s, describing that she was caught up in the rapture of the moment, hearing that God is omniscient, omnipresent. Then she heard that the Lord thy God is a jealous God. And she says something in her did not feel right. How can a perfect God who is everything be a jealous God? Even more so, be jealous of her. The flaw in her reasoning is viewing God's jealousy through the lens of our experience of jealousy. That is sometimes, if not most of the time, driven by uncertainty, insecurity, and an inherent desire for control. And that begs the question, is there such a thing as God, godly jealousy? And the answer is yes. And we are capable of expressing it to some extent in our lives because it is a communicable attribute. I'll give you an example of a spouse. As a spouse, you are jealous for your bride and vice versa because you don't want to see your spouse in some degraded relationship that's going to compromise your intimate relationship that, is, that has been ordained by God. As a parent, you are jealous for your children because you don't want them deceived. We guard them against the ideologies of our time and intentionally shepherd them to see the flaws in our culture. As shepherds, we are tasked to tend the flock of Christ, his church, his bride. 
And we do that with godly jealousy because we do not anyone under our care to be deceived. Paul expresses this well in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 11, verse 2 and 3. He says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of the devotion to Christ. Paul had an earnest concern for the Corinthian church and his desire was to see Christ, the bridegroom, being honored in their lives. All these are great examples of how we express this attribute to some extent. But when we try to understand God's jealousy for his name, for his honor, and for his glory, and his people in light of our expression of jealousy that is imperfect and marred by sin, that sometimes reflects itself in outbursts of anger and insecurity, then we end up with a petty God who is susceptible to change. If we view God's jealousy in light of our jealousy, we end up with the God who is jealous of his people as Oprah views it. Not jealous for his people as scripture instructs us. To some extent, I wonder where exactly she missed it because she alludes to God's perfections yet does not see his jealousy as an expression of his perfection. It is the fact that God is a say. He has life in and of himself, and he needs nothing that is outside of himself. That sets God's jealousy perfectly apart from our experience of jealousy. We are feeble, finite, dependent beings. He is independent and infinite. So for us to have the right view of God's jealousy, we ought to understand it in light of his perfections, his aseity, his infinitude, holiness, omniscience, omnipresence, and the list goes on. Wellam says, when we read about God's covenant relationship with the nation of Israel and then see how it is ultimately fulfilled in his relationship with the church, we discover that the jealousy of God is an important theme and necessary aspect of God's majestic, holy, and loving character. And Boyce says, rightly understood, the idea of jealousy is central to any true concept of God. We just cannot separate it from who he is. So with that in mind, let's turn to our study of God's jealousy. We will first define it, then turn to what scripture teaches about God's jealousy. And lastly, we will consider what those truths entail regarding our Christian living. If you're following in your, in your handout, we're going to define it. When the Bible talks about God's jealousy, it is not implying anything sinful in God, nor is it talking about an imperfection in God. He is a perfect, holy God, and because of His holiness, He can never be sinfully jealous. He is never jealous because He is needy. Like I said earlier, his aseity entails that he has everything in and of himself, meaning he does not need anything outside himself that he doesn't already have. Neither is he jealous because he needs man to come along him to help him accomplish his purposes, as though his jealousy is triggered by the fear that man is going to thwart his plans. 
Scripture tells us that no man can thwart God's plans. So how do we define God's jealousy? I have provided you with three definitions. The first one is from Wayne Grudem. It says God's jealousy means that God continually seeks to protect his honor. God continually seeks to protect his honor. MacArthur and Mayhew defined God's jealousy as his zeal, his zealous protectiveness of all that belongs to him, himself, his name, his glory, his people, his sole right to receive worship and ultimate obedience, his land and his city. Jai Parker says, Jai Parker says, it is his holiness reacting to evil in a way that is morally right and precious. It is a praiseworthy zeal on his part to preserve something supremely precious. All three definitions capture important aspects of the biblical doctrine of God's jealousy. God's jealousy is primarily concerned with his honor, his name, his glory, and it is reflective of his holiness and his love when we think of it in relation to his relationship with mankind. Then we'll go ahead and to prove it. What exactly does scripture say about God's jealousy? Well, the first one, we're going to go to Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. God's name is jealous. God's name is is jealous. God, in renewing his covenant with his people, he, God, renewing his covenant with, with his people after Moses found them worshiping the golden calf, he says to them in, in, chapter, in, in chapter 34, verse 14, for you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. And this is a repetition. He had said it in Exodus chapter 20 when he first, of all, when he first handed them the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me. His name is Jealous. For you shall not worship any other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Jealous is not just a description of God. It is who he is. His very essence. We use names like Elohim, Adonai, El Shaddai, Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Nisi, to appeal to God's character as the sovereign Lord, God, the creator, provider, father, ETC. And among those names, we come across the name Kana, which means jealous. And it, also, it can also be rendered as zealous. So to say that God's name is jealous is to say that he is zealous, meaning fervent, committed, passionate, devoted to his people. As love is inherent to who God is, his jealousy is inherent to who he is. One author said, God's jealousy has love for its cause, love for its aim, and is loving in expression towards his people. That's contrary to our perception of what we think God's jealousy is. When we turn to scripture, we quickly realize that his jealousy stems from his love for his people, and we will explore that more when we look at his jealousy in relation to his people. God's name is jealous. And then our second point, God's jealousy for his name 
and glory. We're going to explore God's jealousy for his name and glory. I have combined these two because they're intertwined. Listen to how Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah puts it in chapter 42, verse 8. Isaiah 42, verse 8 says this, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. God's jealousy for his name is closely linked to his jealousy for his glory. We see examples of Moses and Daniel appealing to God on behalf of Israel saying, but these people are called by your name. In essence, they're saying, God, it is your name that is on the line. Whenever the Lord chastened them, whenever he sent them away into exile, the prophets would turn to God and say, God, have mercy on them because these are your people. They are called by your name. Therefore, the restoration was not just for the people's benefit, but for the sake of God's name and his glory. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 25, where God promises Israel res restoration. Is Ezekiel says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I'll be jealous for my holy name. Even in the restoration of Israel, God is concerned not just with the welfare of his people or with the welfare of the nation of Israel, but the name they bore, Yahweh. And he established a covenant with them. And he is faithful to that covenant. So for the sake of his name and his glory, God is faithful to his covenant even when his bride goes astray. Even if Israel was repeatedly unfaithful to the covenant for the sake of his name and his glory, God kept his covenant with them. He chastened them, but only for a time. Then he brought them back to himself whenever they turned to him in repentance. He would bring in a nation as a rod to punish Israel's disobedience and sin then he would deliver them from that nation and bring them back and restore them back in their land. All that because they bore Yahweh's name, who for the sake of his name and his glory, relentlessly pursued a relationship with them. And we see this ultimately in Christ, Christ coming to die in our place, God pursuing mankind and providing a solution that no sacrifice could ever take or accomplish. But it took the perfect son of God, God himself, incarnate, to die for the ungodly. Oh, for God's name and his glory. Not only do we see God's jealousy for his name, we also see God's jealousy for his people. God's jealousy for his people. I said earlier that God is not jealous of his people. He is jealous for his people. To be jealous of someone is to be opposed to them. 
seeking to have what they have usually comes with the negative connotations we saw earlier, where pride and envy are the motivations behind it. But to have godly jealousy for someone is to align with them, seeking their good and advocating for them when they fail to do so. And we constantly refer to Christ as our advocate because Christ does that for us. Paul models that for us in the earlier verses I read from his second letter to the Corinthians. So God is not only jealous, he's not, he's not only jealous for his name, his honor, and his glory, but he is also jealous for his people. And we're going to see two ways that God expresses his jealousy for his covenant people. The first is this, God jealously chastens his sin in his people. God jealously chastens sin in his people. Turn with me to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 24, verse 19. Joshua chapter 24, verse 19 and 20 says this, Then Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. This was a consistent, a consistent reminder for the, for the people of Israel. God instruct them, instructed them over and over again not to turn to the gods of the land they were about to inherit. Deuteronomy is full of those reminders. Moses reminds the people to be faithful to the covenant that they have established with the, the Lord had established with them. The Lord reminded them in Deuteronomy, he swore to curse them for their disobedience and bless them for their obedience. God was going to jealously guard his covenant and chasten sin in his covenant people, and rightly so, because in his covenant with them, he instructed them not to have any other God before him. For he is a jealous God who will visit their transgression or iniquity to the third and the fourth generation. But Israel was still stuck in disobedience. They would obey for a little while and they'll find themselves pursuing their own gods. Pursuing the God, the very gods the Lord had instructed them not to go after once they had settled in their land. So God chastened them because of their sin. Read with me Esaph. Um, Esau's lament in Psalm chapter 71, 79 rather, verse 1 to 5. Psalm chapter 79, verse 1 through 5. Verse 1 says this, O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the dead bodies of your servants for, the, for food to the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. 
they have poured out their blood like water round about Jerusalem. And there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing, a derision to those around us. How long, O oh Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? In his lament over the destruction of Jerusalem, Esaph rightly attributes the calamity Jerusalem was under to God's doing, his jealousy for his people's unfaithfulness, chastening them for their sin. Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 25 says this, I will set my jealousy against you that they, the, the Chaldeans may deal with you in wrath. They will remove your nose and your ears and your survivors will fall by the sword. They will take your sons and your daughters and your survivors will be consumed by fire. The Lord chastens the sin in his people. The Lord chastens the disobedience. And he does all that to bring his people back to himself. He sends his people into exile. And then he brings them back. He sends his people into exile and brings back the remnant. Which brings us to our second point. Under God's jealousy for his people, he jealously restores his people. He jealously restores his people. God does not chasten his people forever. Rather, he brings them back to himself when his punishment has run its course and they've turned to him in repentance. They've turned away from their sin. This is the recurring theme in the Old Testament, and we see that in the relationship between Yahweh and his ever-wandering ever bride, Israel. In 2 Kings 19.31, the Lord promises restoration to his remnant, for out of Jerusalem will go forth the remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors, the zeal, there is our word again, of the Lord will perform this. Ezekiel 16, verse 42. So I will calm my fury against you, and my jealousy will depart from you, and I will be pacified and angry no more. When God has chastened sin from his people, he brings them back, he restores them, and brings them back in the promised land. The Lord is jealous of his people. He chastens their unfaithfulness to his covenant and restores them, brings them back whenever they turn to him and repent us. We see that Daniel modeled that perfectly in his prayer, praying for forgiveness for the nation of Israel, for the Lord to bring them back to their land because he knew that God was faithful to his covenant because he knew that even though the Lord has chastened them for their sin, they do not cease to be God's people. He acknowledged that their, their being in exile was because of their disobedience and God had instructed them that he was going to punish them for that. 
He was going to curse them for disobedience. So not only God is God jealousy for his name and glory, not only is he jealousy for his people. Third point, God, we see God's jealousy for his people's faithfulness. God's jealousy for his people's faithfulness. The first reference of God's jealousy is found in Exodus 20 at Mount Sinai when God made his covenant with the children of Israel. He forbids them from making themselves idols or worshiping any other God other than their one true God. According to the covenant law, Israel is required to love and maintain exclusive devotion and obedience to Yahweh, their God. Listen to Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 and 6. God says, you shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandment. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 23 and 24, Moses reminds the new generation of Israelites that were about to enter the, the promised land. He reminds them of their covenant. He reminds them of this covenant that the Lord had made with them and how he, got, he jealously guards it. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 23 and 24 says, So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord, your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God is jealous for his people's faithfulness and exclusive devotion to him. The same way a husband is jealous for his wife, his bride, and rightly so, God is jealous for his covenant people, his bride, Israel, in the old, in the old covenant, and the church in the new covenant. But unlike a worldly relationship that may fall apart because of repeated unfaithfulness, God pursues his bride infinitely. You and I as spouses, we may give up after repeated offense over and over again. We see our bride, we see our bridegroom being unfaithful to us. We give up. But God does not. He pursues his bride infinitely. Let me encourage you to spend some time to read Ezekiel chapter 16. And see how God describes his unrelenting relationship with, her, with his unfaithful bride, Israel. Hosea is a great expression of, of, of that as well. But in Ezekiel chapter 16, he says, I passed by you and saw you and I spread my skirt over you to cover your nakedness. And I entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine. I bathed you. 
I anointed you with oil. I adorned you with embroidered clothes and jaws. And your fame went forth among the nations because of the beauty and splendor that I bestowed on you. But you trusted your beauty, took those clothes and played a harlot, and took your jewels made of my gold and my silver, which I had given you and made for yourself a male image, male images that you might play the harlot with them. You took the sons and daughters you had borne with me and offered them for idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? Therefore, O harlot, I will judge you and bring you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I will give you into the hands of your lovers and they will, they will tear, tear you down. They will tear down your shrines, demolish your high places, strip you of your clothing and humiliate you. They will burn and execute judgment on you in sight of many women. I will stop you from playing the harlot. My fury against you and my jealousy will depart from you and I will be pacified and angry no more. Then listen to verses 60 through 63 of Ezekiel chapter 16. I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you received your sisters, both your older and your younger, and I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus I will establish my covenant with you. You shall know that I am the Lord, so that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation when I have forgiven you for all that you have done, declares the Lord. God jealously. God is jealousy for his people's faithfulness. He jealously pursues his bride. Eric Thorne says, Oh, godly jealousy finds its ultimate end in God's glory. God's jealousy for the fidelity of his people is based on his love and compassion, but ultimately he desires his own glory through their undivided devotion. Burke and Bailey, in the New American Commentary, wrote, The Lord is jealous in the sense that he demands an exclusive relationship, zealously protects that relationship and desires the worship that belongs to him alone. He cannot be worshipped alongside any other. Not only is God jealous for his people, not only... Is God, is God jealous for his people's faithfulness? Scripture also tells us that God is jealousy. God, we, we see God's jealousy against his enemies. We see God's jealousy against his, en his enemies. In the prophets, we see this theme of God's jealousy shifting from indicting Israel for her sins and harlotries to the nations who have plundered the holy land. His jealousy for his covenant people means indignation for his enemies that seek to compromise his relationship with his chosen people. We see that recurring theme 
and several examples of the Lord's vengeance on the nations that stood against his, his people. Nahum chapter 1 verse 2 says, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 5 says, Therefore thus says the Lord, Surely the fire of my jealousy in, in the fire of my jealousy I have spoken against the rest of the nations and against all Edom who appropriated my land for themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and with scorn of soul to drive it out for a prey. Isaiah 42, 13 says, The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war, a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. God's jealousy against his enemies means indignation for them. He pursues his, blood, his bride in love. But towards his enemies, his jealousy means indignation. And lastly, see, God, by his jealousy, will establish the Messiah's Davidic kingdom. God, by his jealousy, will establish the Messiah's Davidic kingdom. We cannot talk about God's jealousy for his name, his honor, his glory, apart from his ultimate work in Christ. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 to 7, says, For a child is born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of, or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this, and there is that word again, the zeal of the Lord. His jealousy for his honor, his glory, and his people will accomplish his promise to establish an everlasting kingdom. Christ's coming has initiated that, and the time is coming when we will fully realize it when he returns. I looked at the time and realized I only have four minutes to go. So let's quickly apply it. So how, how, how does that inform our worship? How does that inform our Christian living? Well, first of all, studying God's jealousy should instigate us to turn from all that provokes his jealousy. Studying God's jealousy should instigate us to turn from all that provokes his jealousy. As God's people who are in a covenant relationship with him through Christ's work on the cross, we must turn away from all that provokes his jealousy. As we've seen, God hates sin and he chastens sin in his people. So we cannot harbor sin in our lives and still have a relationship with the Lord. Romans 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Christ died. Christ died for sin. 
And we cannot harbor sin in our lives and expect to have a relationship with the Lord. That provokes his jealousy. And God will chasten us if we harbor sin in our lives. And we will not be able to run the race either. If we are to run the race faithfully, we need to turn away from sin. That provokes God's jealousy. Hebrews 12 verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witness surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. So studying God's jealousy should instigate us to turn from all that provokes his jealousy. Secondly, studying God's jealousy should incite us to live for his glory. Studying God's jealousy should incite us to live for his glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism poses the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What do you live for? Or even better, who do you live for? Do you live your life with the sense of wanting to glorify God in all you do? I say in all you do because most of the times it can be easy for us to limit our relationship to everything we do when we come together as a church. But we ought to remember that life, all of life, is worship which means our desire to glorify God ought to be an unrelenting pursuit that seeks God's glory in all we do when we lose sight of our duty or that chief end we become our own gods and our view of life is easily distorted. We become the center of our lives. Our chief, and our, our chief end becomes the pursuit of our pleasure, living with the false philosophy that we get to enjoy life while we can. Eric Thorson says, when jealousy for God's glory is neglected, the creature rather than the creator takes center stage. And we are all prone for that when we lose sight that we ought to live our lives for God's glory. That is not the way of the believer. This is the way God ought to be the center and we should seek to glorify him. God ought to be the center and our glorify him ought to be the sole purpose of our existence. John Owen wrote, make up your mind that to behold the glory of God by beholding the glory of Christ is the greatest privilege which is given to believers in this life. This is the dawning of heaven. It is the first test of that heavenly glory which God has prepared for us. For this is eternal life, to know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he sent. It is such a great privilege that God would choose us to be agents of his glory. Thus we should live our lives seeking to do his will by his power and for his glory. And lastly, studying God's jealousy should ignite a fervent commitment to his cause. Studying God's jealousy should ignite a fervent commitment to his cause. Scripture is full of examples of men who, passionately, who, are, who are passionately committed to the Lord. In the Old Testament, we come across Phineas in Numbers chapter 25, verse 11 and 13. We come across Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10 and 4. And these men were zealously committed to the Lord in time of moral and spiritual compromise. When we turn to the New Testament, we come across Apostle Paul, 
who faithfully served the Lord after his conversion. In his letter to the, to, to the church in Ephesus, he says, he did not account his life of any value nor as precious to himself if only he may finish his course and the ministry that he received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Then we come across our Lord Jesus. Psalm 69 Verse 9, zeal for your house has consumed me. And Christ modeled this perfectly. He says, the food to me is to do my father's will. When his, when, when, when his disciples asked him, teach us how to pray. He says, you say, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth. It is not surprising then that the Christians are supposed to, we are called to be zealous for good works. I'll end with a long quote from J.I. Parker, and I have that, I, I have that on, your, on your notes as well. J.I. Parker says, a zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. It is not enough to say that he is earnest, hearty, uncompromising, th- thoroughgoing, wholehearted, fervent in spirit, he only sees one thing and he cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame. For all this, the zealous man cares for nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. It is my prayer that we should be such zealous men and women to see God's name his honor, and his glory in our lives and to be faithful agents in that.